Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mike is joined in this episode by former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development, Elbridge Colby, with a special guest appearance by CSIS U.S. Alliance's Project Director, Patrick Buckin. Mike, Bridge, and Pat discuss the planning process for the National Defense Strategy and its impact on force posture in the Indo-Pacific. The three discuss how alliance concerns, budget issues, and adversary planning factor into major planning documents like the NDS. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm joined by Elbridge Colby and Pat Buckin. Bridge is a scholar of international security and East Asia and the Indo-Pacific and the principal drafter of the National Defense Strategy. And Pat, of course, is at CSIS leading our alliance project on leave from the Australian Department of Defense. And before he came to CSIS was seconded with Bridge working on the National Defense Strategy. So we're going to talk today about the goals of the National Defense Strategy, the framing concepts, how execution is going, what it was like making the sausage, how that looks to an ally, particularly one who is embedded in the process, and what are some of the resource challenges or maybe changed assumptions in the age of COVID-19. But first, Bridge, we always like to start because our listeners are always very interested in how you got here. And uh, let's start with that. And I, I have to begin by saying that you and I have known each other since 1958, in a sense, <laughs> in the small world of the blob or the swamp. Um, uh, Bridges' grandfather was, of course, a very, very famous intelligence officer, director of the CIA. When he was the station chief in Rome, Italy, in the late 1950s under Ambassador Claire Booth Luce, uh, my mom was a brown graduate who spoke Italian and was in the CIA station. And the CIA station chief could not have some average person come in and babysit. So he picked one of the only young single women in the uh, embassy and the CIA station to babysit. So my uh, mom, we figured out, uh, babysat Bridges' dad. Um, and just to emphasize, I was not born yet, and Bridges definitely was not born yet. Um, so we go way back in one sense, although we only did this about five years ago. So tell us, you don't have to go back to the 50s, but tell us about your family, about your interest in service and in strategy and Asia. Well, first of all, thanks, uh, Mike. Delighted to be on and honored. I know you've had a, a really great group. And of course, you're a leading expert on Asia around. So it's a delight and an honor to be on, on the show. Uh, you've kind of tipped my hand a little bit. I would say that I think like you, I it's sort of it was sort of in the air. One of the few things that I sort of took maybe a little bit on faith in my family background was just an interest in, in national security and, and serving in some capacity in the foreign and national security realm. Actually, my grandfather's father was also was a career army officer, sort of an early military intellectual. And my, my father, even though he's a, a businessman, I actually grew up in, in Asia, and that's kind of one of the roots of my interest in Asia. But he'd always inculcated and encouraged an, an interest in national security. And so as I've worked on my bio over the years, I've made it look more and more linear uh, in a way that's probably not accurate. I think I always had an interest in national security, but it's taken me some time to figure out. So initially I worked on uh, some of the intelligence reform issues, why the Iraq intelligence was wrong. And then I got really interested actually in all places in law school in the questions of deterrence, which brought me to nuclear weapons. That's kind of the entry point in which I came into high grand strategy. As far as I know, Georgetown Law School doesn't teach nuclear deterrence theory. So how did how did this happen in law school? Yeah, well, I, I, probably not. Well, maybe it is a good uh, ad for Yale Law School, but but Yale, where I went, 
it's always had a little bit of a slipstream uh, for people who are interested in the kind of national security and broader questions. I sort of have taken it to the extreme. I mean, obviously, there's a very distinguished group, people like Steve Hadley and Richard Danzig and so forth, who actually are excellent lawyers in addition to being national security professionals. I dropped the excellent uh, lawyer aspect. I actually uh, only half jokingly say I'm the third generation of failed lawyer. My grandfather practiced for a while before he joined the agency like your mom. My dad practiced for a while and then got out of it. So I just decided to skip that entirely. But in a way, the, the legal training has more applicability than I think is immediately obvious. A lot of actually deterrence theory is essentially the law, but actually particularly in torts, which is about how do you uh, incentivize people to do or not do uh, something. And so that uh, I wouldn't take it too far, but I actually found the legal training to be really useful. And, and Yale was very permissive of a kind of a, a little bit of a free, a free radical. And I, actually, my first job out of law school was working on the new start negotiations. And that was actually under fellowship from Yale Law School. So I, I give that institution a lot of credit for uh, somebody who does not add to Yale's reputation and, and, and legal expertise. It's often made fun of. But I would say that that kind of got me in more and more into the defense strategy. I started in the kind of nuclear realm. But actually, one of the things I would say, kind of bringing it into the NDS for a second, is that one of the things that I brought, I would say, from my personal experience, the NDS was a background in the sort of, I, I use high, I don't mean to kind of be tendentious about it, but or moralistic about it, but kind of the high strategy of nuclear strategy of the Cold War, which had, has really fallen out of the grand strategy discussion a lot since the end of the Cold War, and particularly in, in force planning and defense planning in the Pentagon, where that kind of nuclear strategy kind of high alliance cohesion became separated from the specifics of conventional war fighting and these kinds of things. Largely, I'd say as a product of unipolarity, but one of the things I was trying to do in, in, in my own way was, was re-inject a little bit or kind of reintegrate that a little bit. So I had Steve Hadley on this podcast early on, and when I asked him about his interest in strategy, he did not mention Yale Law School, actually. He mentioned, <laughs> he mentioned history, and one of my um, pet themes is that history is a great guide to strategic thinking. And Steve, you know, maybe he was throwing me a, a bone, but he picked up on that and said, studying diplomatic history under Walter uh, Weber at Cornell is what really got him uh, interested in strategy. But it makes sense that law school would prepare you because it's an extremely disciplined way of arguing and thinking. And, um, you know, you, you were working nuclear weapons. And, and as you point out, there's a logic to that. Before you joined the Pentagon as the Deputy Assistant Secretary in charge of uh, strategic issues. What other policy jobs did you have along the way? Sure. Well, um, and actually, maybe I'll go back for a second, because I would say my real interest in strategy per se, I would say uh, General Secretary Mattis, uh, somebody said that he always has a sort of a crucible experience for trying to understand an individual's uh, formation. I would say my uh, possibly is a product of my age, my kind of crucible experience was the debates over the Iraq war. You know, I, I know didn't serve in the military or anything, but a lot of it, I go back to actually my, my good friend who was, you may know Mike, Roman Martinez, who was on the NSC working in Iraq and was in, out, out in Baghdad. And he and I would have titanic debates about the Iraq war. And he was, a, you know, at the time was a big supporter. And I think, and I was a, a, a critic and we would have these real sharp back and forths and he would push me to sort of justify why, you know, I had this intuition about deterrence and that deterrence could work better, but he would push me and push me and push me. And I, frankly, I have to say, I lo I've lost a lot of arguments to him, but I don't feel so bad as he's now a Supreme Court litigator. But I think that kind of set me on the path of saying, okay, I need to figure this out. I got involved in some of the intelligence reform issues, as, as I mentioned, the President's Commission on the Iraq Intelligence in 0405, then, then working for 
Ambassador Negroponte when he was setting up the, the office of the DNI. But trying to think through that, then when I went to law school, I used a lot of time to try to get deeper into that led me to the deterrence kind of literature. Then that new start job. Uh, and then I left, you know, being a Republican, I left the Pentagon in, in 2010. And I was first at CNA, which is one of the, the defense federally funded research and development centers. I spent a couple months there too after I, after there. I yeah. <laughs> so uh, working primarily on strategic issues. And then at CNAS, which I joined in 2014 when, when Bob Work was the CEO and then when Michelle Fornoy and working with people like Sean Brimley and Eli Ratner and, and those people. And what I would say on that is it's interesting. I, I, I kind of, evolved out of the nuclear issues a little bit. Even before I went into the Pentagon, I remember I was presenting on some, I, I really got interested in this issues of escalation and limited war, because it seems to me this is kind of where my thinking led, which bears to the NDS. But I think I presented to a, a group uh, that Jan Nolan had a few years ago. And uh, Charlie Glazer said, you know, that's interesting presentation on nuclear strategy. It's not really what you're talking about is not nuclear strategy. You're talking about a conventional issue. And I kind of, you know, sort of obvious when he said it. I mean, it's, he's a brilliant guy, but but it was kind of like I'd kind of thought myself into a different uh, space, kind of grounded and and proceeding from that nuclear strategy background. The thinking about the problem, it led me to a different place, which is how I got into the kind of the fait accompli and the escalation management and so many things that that are in the NDS kind of logic. So how'd you get the pin on the national defense strategy? Honestly, I, I usually say through through no fault of my own or through through no uh, fault's not the right word, jokingly. I mean, it was an enormous honor. I, um, I, serendipity, honestly. I think, um, I don't know how the selection process went, but I became the, the deputy assistant secretary for strategy and force development in May of 2017. By that point, Secretary Mattis had already been the secretary for a couple of months. And he and, and you know, his staff, had already structured a system in which it was going to be a small team, and Pat knows this very well, and played a really important role in a lot of these issues, a small team reporting directly to him. And I always, you know, I'm a structuralist, I'm a realist. I think the most important thing that happened at the NDS was Secretary Mattis' decision not to have a typical QDR, Quadrennial Defense Review, not to have 50 people on each team led by a two-star, which essentially leads to attrition bureaucratic warfare, and you end up not so far where you started. Instead, he said, I'm going to have this DASD and a guy from the Joint Staff reporting directly to me and eventually the Deputy Secretary as well, composed of 15 to 20 people, half of them civilians, individuals from each of the services. He specifically said, I don't want flag officers, uh, as, I, as I understand it, because he wanted people who would have more freedom, uh, would not be sort of kind of only staff, but really participate themselves and, and iterate with him. So I think that's sort of, I mean, I... You know, I, I'd never met him before. I mean, obviously, I knew him by by his incredible reputation, but I kind of fell into that. In some ways, it would have been more natural, given my background, to to go to the nuclear job. But I'm really, I mean, well, that's an incredibly important job, and Rob Super has done a tremendous job there. I'm I'm really happy that I, you know, uh, landed uh, ended up in this in the strategy job because I think it was just such an amazing group and team and and, and window. So normally, the national defense strategy. Uh, or the reports I worked on in the Pentagon in the mm -hmm. 90s, the East Asia Strategic Reports, mm -hmm. you know, the first thing we would do is study the national security strategy from the White House and at a minimum not piss off the president and ideally craft a defense strategy that fits into the national uh, grand strategy. Doesn't always happen that way. I remember the Bush administration, Secretary Rumsfeld didn't really care what the White House thought, especially, <laughs> especially the NFC staff. So it was a little more of a, of a of to and fro um, and the Continental Defense Reviews had a life of their own that sort of lived independently of whatever was coming out of the White House. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but the NSS for the Trump administration, the NSS came out before the MDS, at least chronologically. Did it shape it? Is that your 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 you're out of government now? You can tell the truth. Was that yeah. a touchstone for you guys? Yeah, I mean, I would, and I think you obviously know this better than I. I mean, I think the sometimes platonic model of a national security strategy that is sort of shaped and then goes down into a national defense strategy and, and so forth is rarely how things go uh, for a number of reasons, including the fact that you've got four years. Sounds like a lot of time, but it can get eaten up pretty quickly. What I would say is, in a way, almost probably like an intellectual, you know, scholarly work where you're being influenced by other people, even if the, the, the timestamp on your publication date, it might be later. Uh, the NSS only came out a month, I think, uh, before the NDS. The National Security Strategy, I think, came out in December of 17 and the National Defense Strategy in January. Um, what I will say is that Nadia Shadlow, who was the primary uh, lead on the National Security Strategy, and I would talk all the time, uh, very close cooperation. And I was participating in all of her meetings or, or somebody from the team did. And more, there was a kind of a, a less formal interaction that went through. And of course, Nadia, actually Nadia, I think already knew Mattis a little bit from her, from her background. So there was a cross-pollination or whatever you want to call it. I will say, I mean, I think one of the things that the president, uh, and obviously people uh, have strong views on him, but just kind of looking at it from a um, kind of an analytical, kind of empirical point of view, one of the things that the president's done, I think Kissinger put it, put it well, he said he's a disruptor who kind of cracked the cast on a lot of things that have become calcified. Now, some people think that's bad. Some people think that's good. But I think one of the things that we were able to do is the president was saying, look, you know, I want you to put America first as they put in the national security strategy. I want essentially a kind of a something that's more tightly connected to our national interests. And I think that allowed a space uh, for people working in subordinate echelons to be able to pursue something. So, you know, I think in the national defense strategy, you know, I would certainly say we're very faithful to the and, and aligned with the national security strategy, focus on great power competition and stuff. But I would almost even say I think the national defense strategy even went even went farther, which it may be more natural for a defense strategy where these kind of hard choices are sometimes more more necessary uh, and practical. On uh, with my current boss and my former boss, so um, <laughs> it's a unique opportunity. You know, if we cast our minds back to that time, people were still reeling, quite frankly, from the election of, of the Trump administration. Uniquely, I'd found myself in the, in the office of the Secretary of Defence and the strategy team, which Bridge headed up, as one of the longest serving people because I'd come in about 18 months before with the churn and burn. So I'd seen the Obama staff move, move out. One of the things that I was seeing was I guess I was very cognizant that in the little way or influence that I could have in the strategy that we would factor in some of that concrete, if you will, on the importance of alliances particularly. We'd seen a lot of the rhetoric from the campaign on alliances, the questioning of alliances. I guess my what I wanted to do was to take some of the emotion out of you know alliances, the, you know, the classic lines, you've always been with us, because I think that gets a little tired, right? If an alliance is based on history, then that's a historical fact. 
But if it's based on grounded in modern reality, then you can sell that, particularly to this administration. So I kind of took that tact, you know, gently behind the scenes. How could I ensure that that alliances and particularly the alliances in the Indo-Pacific were not taken for granted and that they were of modern utility to this administration? Particularly some of the folks we did see over at the White House in those first few months, I guess, obviously took a very questioning line to alliances. A lot of those folks didn't hang around. So that was the sort of small role I'd like to play when I was in support to, to, to Bridge, who, who obviously had the pen. Bridge, um, if you can tell me, were there embeds from uh, NATO? There was a UK uh, participant, yeah. And I ask in part because one theme is uh, while there are four strategic competitors, China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, it's clear that the Indo-Pacific is flagged as the um, (laughs) primary theater. Uh, And that was with British embeds in the room. The pivot to Asia, the Obama administration's pivot, that was also supposed to prioritize the Indo-Pacific, or as we called it at the time, the Asia-Pacific. But resources didn't change. Was that going through your mind as you did this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the reason that this strategy matters was because the Secretary of Defense and the administration were behind it. I mean, people like like me and the team could say things, but it wouldn't carry weight and move move money because people, even if it's a formal statement, I think one of the problems with the shift, the pivot uh, rebalance or what have you, is I think people could kind of see that it wasn't really where the the, the movement was. Um, and I think one of the things that that you know, my, my sense of what a strategy could do, why a strategy can make difference. And I've, I've actually been confirmed or, or even persuaded in my view that strategies can matter by that experience for reasons that are well beyond my, my role, have essentially almost nothing to do with me. But if an empowered leader or, you know, leadership cadre makes a clear statement, uh, assumes the, the hard choices and political risk under themselves, and provides a degree of clarity and builds upon an existing recognition. I mean, there's a great Kissinger line. There's so many great Kissinger lines, even if he's not always right uh, by any stretch. But, you know, which is like um, great acts of statecraft are not uh, products of virtuoso performance. They have to under- reflect underlying realities. So Bob Work is somebody I've known for a long time. I've had tremendous admiration for for a long time. He was the deputy secretary for some of the critical early months of that period. A lot of the stuff that he was doing from the 20, period of 2014, and, and in his individual case before that, but from the time he was Deputy Secretary of Defense, were absolutely critical. Some of the things that, that Dave Ockmanek was talking about in 2014, 2015, these are absolutely right. And these were in a, in a way that I actually analogize to a lot of things that the Reagan administration, I think, rightly did and rightly gets credit for, were building on things that the Carter administration, even, even the Nixon Ford administrations had started to see. I mean, if you look at the Army's uh, big programs of the 80s, those had all started. You know, the, B, the B1, the B2 program, B2, B1 is complicated, but, you know, you get the point. Similarly, I think here, and one of the critiques of the Obama administration I would have on this point is that they were not able, and I think Bob would, would admit that, was that they were not able to translate that vision. And that was for a number of different reasons. But I think what Secretary Mattis was trying to do and what Secretary Esper has really uh, continued trying to do is to say, I, as the secretary, I, as the president's empowered individuals, confirmed by the Senate, et cetera, I am committed to this. I'm committed to making these hard choices. I'm not going to mince words about it. I mean, I think there was a little bit with the pivot to Asia. And again, I, I agree with the substance, but which was kind of a yes, we're pivoting. The one I always kind of go to is like 60 percent of U.S. naval assets are deployed in the Pacific. And, you know, anybody who kind of peeled back the onion and that saw that that was kind of like an accounting trick a little bit that was explaining something that was already there. It wasn't actually moving the hard decisions. 
at the time, I felt like the Pentagon had a pretty clear, the, the Obama administration Pentagon had a pretty clear yep. idea of ends, ways, and means. They saw unambiguously, particularly after 2010-11, that China was a strategic competitor. Mm-hmm. They just weren't allowed to say it. And Bob Ward, right. as the deputy, was the workhorse who made sure that um, ways and means fit the ends of preventing that rival, that strategic competitor from undercutting our alliances and so forth. Mm-hmm. I think the problem with the pivot was that the premise itself was not something that uh, people agreed on. So I, I've read yeah. this, but um, I, I uh, heard both uh, Secretary Hillary Clinton and Secretary John Kerry talk about China, and it was very clear to me, and you don't have to look at too many of the public statements to understand this, that uh, John Kerry did not think at the time, at the time, that China was a strategic competitor, Hillary Clinton did. So they had trouble defining or agreeing on the, the ends. Absolutely, the I think that's right. And I think one of the great strengths of the NSS and the NDS was clearly defining strategic competition and not losing that competition, you know, maintaining our privacy, which is open to a lot of different interpretation, as we have against, as I wrote in my book, you know, Britain, Germany, Japan, Soviets, where I was a little less certain about the NDS, I'll have to say, in the NSS is, what were the assumptions? So um, a lot of us looked at it and thought, good on you, uh, to use an Australianism. Uh, you've, you've, you've called a spade a spade for strategic competition, but what are the assumptions? Do we think China's shapeable? Do we think uh, China is now on a trajectory where we are basically going to have to defend ourselves? It wasn't so clear. Maybe it wasn't something you could you could state. Yeah. What can you tell us now about some of the assumptions well, about the nature of that competition? Candidly, one of the frustrations I had is that I, you know, the, the national defense strategy, unlike the national security strategy, the actual document is a classified document. My personal view, also the view of the NDS Commission, was that the vast majority of that could have readily been declassified. I think that would have been the right course for multiple reasons. I think Secretary Esper has begun to speak a little bit more candidly about some of the key principles in it. I think the unclassified summary of the national defense strategy gives you very, very thin sense of what the national defense strategy is actually uh, talking about. And that, of course, sounds like I'm just hiding behind a wall of classification, uh, which I actually uh, hate doing. So I, um, I resort to that all the time. Don't worry. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> a brilliant paper that I will never be declassified. Um, the one thing I will say, in, in, in since it's been, been cleared and so forth, is I, I gave some testimony uh, to the Senate Armed Services Committee at the beginning of last year, at the beginning of 2019, which I, I think goes in a little bit more detail, less on the assumptions that you're talking about, uh, which I'll get to in a sec, because I, you know, I don't think there are any issues there, but particularly on how you walk down that ends, ways, means uh, line uh, that you're talking about. And then actually, you can see some of it reflected in the report of the National Defense Strategy Commission in some of its critiques. Uh, for instance, the National Defense Strategy Commission critiqued it, the National Defense Strategy for taking too much risk and for a- emphasizing capability over capacity, which by inference, of course, tells you where, where it was by too much prioritization of the Asia Pacific, for instance. What I will say is on the assumptions, Secretary Mattis is very rigorous on this kind of point, problem definition and so forth. We actually did a very, uh, in fact, I, and this was some of my own um, maybe excessively uh, pseudo-academic uh, uh, aspiration, but we spent about the first month on framing and kind of uh, intellectual structure, and we had competing groups within it. Uh, Evan Montgomery was involved in this and some other people from the team. What I would say is that one of the critical, absolutely critical assumptions of the national defense strategy is this abiding centrality of the state, uh, and the state is an actor in national politics, which I think the COVID crisis only reinforces, and I think, you know, uh, there's obviously a different school of thought, but to me, there, you know, if you look at the global trends document, the National Intelligence Council, that's a very different assessment. Our assessment, you know, which was shared by other parts of the U.S. government, was that the state 
is uh, the, the central actor and kind of hard power is what really drives that. And that leads you very, very quickly both to China as the primary challenge and the Asia Pacific, given its its wealth and economic development and potential to translate that into military power uh, as the central theater. And so the, the national defense strategy is much clearer than any document, I think, in recent memory in saying that this is the core problem. The solution is a restoration of American military power and addressing the erosion of American conventional military superiority. But it has a particular theory of victory, if you will, which is largely defeating the uh, red theory of victory. I would, and this is kind of what my book, which I'm leaning very heavily on your superb book, Mike, uh, in it is about matching that political objective, which is essentially coalition defense. I'm a fan of like Bob Comer's view or, or Dave Ockmanek's made this view very, I think, lucidly as well, uh, which is designed to gather and cohere a coalition together and provide the military backing to be able to substantiate that. Now, I don't want to pretend that the national defense strategy says exactly what I'm saying here. I'd say we got about, about 85% there. We're now at the kind of the toughest part, but I think the national defense strategy sets in the right direction. The other point of the assumption that I would say the possibly the single most important thing about the national defense strategy, and I can't get into too much specificity here, is an assumption that, that the era of American sort of unipolarity or hyperpower is over, not out of some uh, kind of a desire for us to be weaker, but just as a recognition of the structural development. And accordingly, that we have to adapt. And one of those is that we have to make hard choice prioritization, which I think is very rare. And I think one of the things I really think that, that Secretary Mattis and Shanahan and others deserve a lot of credit for is saying specifically in a document, I can't get into too much specificity, but these are the things I want you to do less of. I mean, I remember, because one of the good things about my job was that I was the strategy guy, but also as the policy representative in the budget deliberations. So I would see the, the decisions and be a part of decisions about the future budget. So you'd have to see kind of where the, you know, the rubber really meets the road. And one of the things that one of the army representative, really thoughtful guy uh, would say is, you know, Bridge, don't tell us to do all these other things and then leave it to us to make the hard choices. That's not fair. And I said, that's exactly right. And I think Secretary Mattis was ultimately willing to say, and you see that now, you see the struggle, of course, even today on the withdrawal of Patriot batteries from, from Saudi Arabia, for instance, and CENTCOM, the continuing maw of CENTCOM, it's hard, but I think it's pretty clear where the DOD leadership has been. And what I, I think to your point about John Kerry and Hillary Clinton is exactly right. I think Bob Wark was there that whole time, but I'm not sure that the rest of that, you know, and it's it's a strategy is sort of an evangelization document at some level, right? I mean, it's kind of like clearer than truth, right? I mean, not to compare the NDS with NSC 68, but I mean, you know, NSC 68, when you go back and you read it, it's a little bit maudlin and kind of overwrought. But th the purpose of it was to activate the mass mind of government, right? And to make it clear how serious the situation was, reorder uh, uh, resources and so forth, help that the, you know, war in Korea and so forth. But I think that's the contribution of the NDS is not saying, oh, it's this brilliant thing that people haven't thought of. No, it's actually building on a lot of that stuff, but it's actually taking these hard steps that are very politically difficult and, and personally difficult for a lot of these senior leaders. And that, that, that to me, is the, the key aspect of it or one of them. Pat, sitting in the room for all this in the Pentagon is an embed from Australia. And I have to say it is just so remarkable that we let our closest allies into these most fundamental and sensitive strategic discussions. But where it came out, how do you think it was going to play in Australia and the region? How do you think it did play? The NDS itself. We'll talk about the actual execution 
in just a sec. Yeah, Mike, I think um, there are obviously some aspects I could not have been involved in due to, due to national classifications, and that's completely understandable, right? Some of those, there's some family debates that you have that you don't let your cousins involved in, right? And I could completely understand that. My point was this. I became very concerned that white papers, QDRs had become formulaic. That being that every four years you sort of get a team together, you crank out some dot points and um, it ends up becoming a sort of policy document that sits on the shelves of, uh, of, of officials throughout Washington or, or Canberra or Tokyo, wherever it may be. What was interesting about this, and, and Bridge alluded to that, I take a slightly contrarian view where Bridge sort of noted that he would have preferred a more open version um, of, of, of the NDS. I'm not sure I fully concur with that, but what this did do, and Bridge did allude to this where his references to NSC 68, which obviously set forth the containment strategy for the United States, I think this set a marker down, a historical marker down, to say to the American people, to say to the world and to America's friends and adversaries alike, that the United States is now back in the great power game. The, the, the last 20 to 25 years of the sort of low-intensity conflict and particularly focused on the Middle East the CENTCOM theatre, those days are, are, are now taking a second tier prioritisation for the United States. So that was, the, for me, the most interesting thing was to witness a historical shift and the, the official policy guidance to recognise that that policy shift has now occurred, that, as Bridge noted, that the state is now back central to as the security actor on the global stage. Well, I don't see a Biden campaign or a Biden administration going after the fundamental basis of the NDS, which is strategic competition with China. I think that boat has sailed, so to speak. And for political reasons, but also reasons of just sort of logic and national interest, I don't see uh, a Biden uh, campaign or administration trying to roll that back. Their criticism is going to be about execution. Um, and of course, they'll attack the president for his worldview. Um, and you know they'll say, to win this uh, blue-red competition, the US must have allies. And we've treated them terribly. And you can read Secretary Mattis's resignation letter and come away thinking it was primarily about how we treated our allies. Part of that is, you know, demands for host nation support that are astronomical. Part of it is, I think, withdrawal from the Middle East. But, but part of it is that our allies also want us to play in a, even in a state-centric world. I'm a realist, too. I basically agree. But our allies want us to play in the multilateral arena and want us to play in the diplomatic game. So all of those are not really problems with the NDS itself. It's kind of about execution. And after our own unilateral military capabilities, the most important force multiplier tool we have is our alliances and our network of alliances. So, Bridge, you know, you've been up for a little while. How, how do you look at that piece of it? Obviously, Secretary Mattis wasn't too happy about the execution on alliances. And I assume that was fundamental to the NDS is, is getting our alliances up and ready for this. Yeah, I mean, I have a different view. And I mean, I think on, on a number of axes, I mean, I think that fundamentally we're, we're preaching from the same Bible. But a couple of points. I think that there is going to be a segment of the Democratic national security elite that's going to say, yeah, NDS is great, blah, 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 but we're going to do it smarter. But the reality is that, first of all, it's going to demand a lot of resources, which are going to be hard to, to generate, especially in a more constrained environment. It's going to involve a lot of controversial and tough stuff where, I mean, you know, for instance, you see people saying, you know, we need to work with the Chinese to deal with COVID, to deal with pandemic, to deal with, that's going to be much, much of a, you know, a much stronger impetus on the left side of, of the aisle. And I think if the de quote unquote defense Democrats, many of whom are, you know, great friends of mine and who I have tremendous admiration for, if they ran the world, things might be 
fine and, and, and dandy, but they're not. They're going to run into the why doesn't the Air Force have a bake sale kind of problem. And, you know, and there's going to be this constant, uh, you know, the Republicans are in Trump administration are going to have challenges of our, of our own. But the Democrats are going to have this challenge of, eh, do we really need to deploy those uh, intermediate range conventional tip missiles? They're so controversial and it's going to cause friction in our alliances. And do we really need to push the Germans to step up and do 2% and have not embarrassingly pathetic conventional forces to allocate towards the defense of Eastern NATO? For instance, it's going to be tough. And I think what, what Trump has done, uh, you know, in a macro sense, is basically open up a much more realistic appraisal. And I think what Pat is actually, it's kind of building on what Pat is saying is, look, we need to have a serious conversation for Japan. I mean, nobody knows Japan better than you. But I mean, it's ridiculous that they are spending 1% of their GDP on defense, and they need to hear it from us. They need to hear it from us because if it doesn't happen now or in five years, or then in five years or 10 years, when Americans are going to say, wow, this is really hard and risky because it's literally the first time we've faced an economy larger than our own in 150 years. And secondly, we have massive pressure on our entitlements, and you're asking us to spend 3%, and you guys spend one, maybe 1.5%, depending on how you measure it. Because of World War II, that was 75 to almost 100 years ago, you know. So better to have this pain and friction now. Now, I wish that we were doing better on getting to a place where we actually could have a coalition defense that was really predicated on a realistic assessment of our various goals. I mean, to me, Ash Townsend's work at the U.S. Study Center is exactly right, kind of really doing more with the allies. I mean, to my view, you know, Secretary Mattis, I think, was deeply, deeply committed to sustaining our alliances, and I certainly agree with that. But to me, the NDS logic is a different model of alliance. In a sense, it's a little bit more like a Cold War model. And a Cold War model in which, you know, you could have the Plaza Accord uh, fight, or you could have Lyndon Johnson literally insisting that the Germans pay gold in order to have the good fortune of having the American occupying army there. You know, but really, basically, the point being, look, this is a collective effort. You cannot ask too much of the American people, you know, de Gaulle's line. We're not going to just, because we're no longer dominant, so dominant anymore, we have to think about the reality of a war over Taiwan, which Taiwan being critical for the defense of Japan. But, you know, the PLA is the most sophisticated military we've dealt with in over a generation. And you can't just assume the American people will pay any price or support any friend. And so I actually think, honestly, if the Democrats come in, they're going to have a really tough situation on the alliance front in a way that they don't quite probably expect, which is that there's this sense that things, you know, particularly in Europe, but probably in, I don't detect as much in Asia, but, but you would have a better sense than I but that things are going to go back to the way they were. Everybody's going to be polite. The Americans are going to say that we expect 2%, but nobody's really going to believe us. And that's not going to fly politically here as well. Yeah, I think some of our friends in the national security establishment uh, around former Vice President Biden know exactly what you're saying and probably worry themselves about a part of the new administration if Biden wins coming in and saying, well, Trump's gone, now everyone will love us and do what we want. And it ain't going to happen. Right. And the allies, um, I gave a talk in Canberra in, in, uh, last year and a lot of DFAT defense people. And one of the, one of the questions said, you know, we, we never win. We get a Republican administration that spends the money, that has the risk tolerance, that stands up to the bad guys, but scares the hell out of everybody, doesn't listen well, yada, yada. Or we get a Democratic administration that listens really well, does the multilateral diplomacy we want, and then does stuff like sequestration, doesn't pay for it. And I said, you know, we're the, still the best restaurant in town. It's just that we have prefix menus and you can't do a la carte. <laughs> this part of Republicans are like this part of Democrats. Uh, so yeah. I, I, I'll tell you, on the pressure on allies, yeah. I don't worry that much about Japan. I think 
okay. I think that the Abe government is going to take the guyots of the pressure from Donald Trump and say, internally, yeah, we got to spend a little more. It's not going to be a four or five hundred percent increase in host nation support or a doubling of the budget, but it's going to be uh, more. COVID may knock that off, but it'll be more. And what they're but what they're going to do is say, you know, uh, you're right. Uh, we're going to do more standoff weapons. We're going to do more in space. We're going to take more risk. It's not all about dollars and cents. And I think within the administration, there are going to be people, people in the Pentagon, the White House, and state who say, that's what we want to do. I worry about Korea because, um, mm-hmm. to be honest, mm-hmm. I don't think the Moon government is that deft, doesn't have that level of trust uh, and, and mm-hmm. exchange and intimacy with this administration. You know, I lived through this conservative Republican government, progressive Korean government. But I also worry, to be honest, that within the president's mind and maybe in some of the services, there's a view that maybe we shouldn't be in Korea. And so the risks, I think, of this hardline strategy of the Korea are, are high. And I, I, I want to ask about Korea because the NDS and the NSS are very Mahanian. You know, it's a maritime strategy. It's coalitions mm-hmm. of like-minded maritime mm-hmm. coalition building. It's all, you know, I'm a Mahan guy. I love it. But it's also Mahanian in the sense that Mahan and George Kennan and others who followed him didn't think we should be on the continent of Asia, which leaves Korea in an awfully awkward spot. And I, reading the NDS, yep. thinking about U.S.-Korea alliance, didn't quite get where Korea fits. There's obviously the North Korea problem. Where does the U.S.-Korea alliance fit? Because in my view, that's the alliance in Northeast Asia that the Chinese are targeting. Well, Mike, I mean, this is why I should be asking you, because I, I want to spend this hour hearing what you think. But, you know, I feel like I need to sing, sing for my supper. I mean, honestly, I think you put your finger on a real pressure point just on the Japan issue. I agree with you. In fact, the National Defense Planning Guidelines are probably about as close to the NDS as you can get for a foreign defense strategy. I think Australia is coming along really well. But things kind of make a lot of sense to me in, in the sense that, OK, Japan, we got to increase capacity. But you're absolutely right. To me, the real when people talk about the second line of effort for the national defense strategy on alliances, what it really is, is a new approach to alliances. And I think this was in Mattis's mind. He used to talk about he'd never served in a U.S. only formation. And the model here to me, and I wrote something about this about a year ago in the European context, is back in the, in the day in NATO, there was an American core or whatever, I think, then a German then an American, then a German, then a Dutch, then a British army, the Iran, and so forth. And you had a coalition defense. Now, it was hard to make that work. But the idea was that the Americans had to give up a lot more of that unipolar discretion. It's not the Donald Rumsfeld attitude of, ah, we don't need allies because they just fly flags. No, you actually need them, which means you actually have to work with them. You have to really collaborate in the planning process. You might have to do joint force development, which I think is something we should really be thinking about, particularly with the closer ones. You have to expand the tent. It's not just the Five Eyes, it's Japan. I mean, Japan is the single most important alliance in the United States. And I'm not just saying this because I grew up there or that you're Mr. Japan. I'm saying this because it's the second largest advanced economy in Asia. It's directly in the path of China's pursuit of regional hegemony. Yes, we have shared values, but we even better, we have a shared structural, deep structural alignment in preventing China's hegemony. And Japan is also forward in the way that West Germany was. So it's kind of a, an alignment. So Japan should become more like the FRG of of the 1970s and 1980s, which is a robustly well-developed military designed for territorial defense. But that might include space, cyber, some strike capability along the lines you're talking about, but ideally integrated. So anyway, that makes sense. And then Taiwan, which I talk about all the time because I think it's the pain point in the alliance structure. I mean, one of the things I'd love to talk to you more about is in writing my book, I've really come to appreciate the sort of archaic or the putatively archaic problem of a defense perimeter. I mean, it really is... It's kind of old-fashioned, but it's really important. 
It's remarkable how when I was doing my book and I used declassified documents from the NSC from the 50s, it was all about the island chain. And, you know, back. it's just more complicated because we have outer space, biospace, cyberspace. Except you still have to project military power in in time and space. But uh, anyway, I didn't mean to ignore it. I was going to get to your Korea problem, but yeah. Korea is, to me, the intellectual, and the U.S.-Korea alliance is the intellectual Gordian nod or the... Yeah. The old prize. And if people could figure that out, we win. Because what the U.S.-Korea alliance represents, a joint and combined alliance. I mean, we do things with the Koreans I wish we could do with the Japanese in terms of yeah. planning and jointness and interoperability. Yeah. And um, combined commands and all of that. That's an amazing asset. And then, of course, the Korean Peninsula is the linchpin, the fulcrum, the cockpit of Asia. Right. And right. yet it's incredibly hard for Korea, even conservative Koreans, to play the same game in China competition as Australia or Japan or India. So we really got to figure that one out, I think. Um, I, I agree with you. Well, I, sorry, I didn't mean to duck the question. Yeah, I, don't, I hope you don't mind me saying that the NDS, which I think is going to stand as a document that historians look at and see the trajectory continuing over several administrations. But the one thing that's still to be figured out in some ways is, is what do you do about a country like Korea? <laughs> hey, let me end by asking about your book project and yeah. what you're doing. Well, I'm my book project is basically... Uh, really trying to develop the NDS logic. I mean, the NDS, I, I think it went a long way in, in the right direction, but it's a government document and it's a point in time. To me, what we want to do is we want to bring people back to the level of sophistication and kind of an election that, that, that you had in NATO in, say, the 60s, 70s, and 80s on military uh, planning, on alliance cohesion. I think during the period of unipolarity, these issues became a lot different. You could say easier, but in, probably harder in a different way. But what I'm trying to do is basically, and I don't think somebody's, it's been a long time since somebody's written a kind of a true defense strategy book along the lines of what defense strategy and government is. You have a lot of very good grand strategy books and you have, you know, Barry Posen and some have written defense strategy books from this kind of offshore restraint perspective. But what I'm trying to do is, okay, if you want to maintain alliance co- and kind of the, the cohesion of the anti-hegemonial coalition in Asia, what does that mean? What is at issue and, you know, di- differentiated credibility? And then what is the military strategy that succeeds in that in a way that correlates the costs and risks that we run by doing so with the benefits that we gain? And that's it's a tough question. In fact, I don't think it was ever really solved in the Cold War, but we got to a good enough point to keep the lid on things until the Soviets fell apart, if we can get to that point. And I'm very concerned about Taiwan because I think Taiwan is our differentiated credibility is on the line. I think it's militarily valuable in the defense of Japan, which is the true, you know, cornerstone of, of the coalition in Asia, along with India. Um, and but but China has the capability, uh, increasingly the capability to threaten uh, Taiwan. So that's the book project. I'm hoping it's due. The first kind of main draft is due in a couple months and then it's supposed to come out hopefully next year uh, in time to at least be part of the conversation on, on whatever defense strategy, whether it's another Republican administration or Democrat. And then my main advocation is what we call the Marathon Initiative. So Wes Mitchell uh, who is the Assistant Secretary of State for Europe, who's a, been a very close old friend of mine. We're very like-minded, kind of, you know, conservative realist types have uh, been thinking about this for a while. And this is an initiative that's really designed to just really think, laser in on the great power competition, you know, like a think tank, like really to allow us to do the deep thinking, this kind of book, longer projects, uh, you know, while obviously doing uh, kind of public facing stuff as well, but really to give us that, that opportunity over the long haul. So, uh, Bridge, that is going to be a big contribution. So thanks for taking it on. Thanks for your well, service. Thanks. I appreciate it. And congratulations on your success. I, I would like to take some credit since my mom obviously did <laughs> uh, a critically important job babysitting your dad. 
back <laughs> among other among other she was in the she was working all hours in Rome. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I assume actually she wasn't babysitting him in the Rome station itself, probably in the residence. Um, uh, so, knowing my uncles, that was quite a quite a task. So oh, so maybe your dad wasn't the problem. Well behaved. Telling me about it was yeah. your uncles. <laughs> um, Pat, thank you. Uh, you obviously had a great boss uh, in the Pentagon. Yeah, I did. And Bridge, Pat, I, Pat. I, hope, I hope you're doing well down there, Mike. Thanks for uh, allowing me to listen in. It was uh, it was a nice little trip down memory lane of uh, of those first twelve months in the Trump administration at the Pentagon, which was a pretty wild ride. Bridge, we'll get you back on when the book's done. Good luck with it. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.